We have been in the book of Revelation for a little while now. We're getting about, we're about halfway. Um, I guess after today, we'll be halfway. Uh, and we're seeing some interesting things in Revelation. You know, John, the last apostle alive when he writes this, he's on a prison island, visited by a vision of Jesus. And he's given a word for the Christian churches. And Jesus tells John, I'm going to give you a vision of the future, of the end times, how everything's going to play out. And the commission to John was, write everything down you see, everything down you hear, and everything down you experience. And so John takes this, and he uses every word available to him in the first century. And he's writing down his experience, seeing the throne room of God in, in Revelation uh, uh, 4 and 5. And then as he begins to see um, action take place, we saw that when he looked, he saw in God's hand was a scroll, and the scroll was sealed uh, seven times. He saw Jesus come out and break open each one of those seals, and as each seal on the scroll was broken, something happened. A, what they call a judgment took place, um, or, or was about to take place, preparing to take place. And the seventh seal was broken. And then God allowed something else to take place. Seven angels came out, and they were each given a trumpet each. And as they began to blow their trumpets, uh, uh, stuff began to happen. More judgments began to take place. That's what we saw last week. Is we saw six of those trumpets blown, and some judgments would take place at each one of the blowing of the trumpets. But what we've seen consistently throughout the book of Revelation is God continuing to give the people of the world opportunities to come to Christ. That God, in all his love and generosity, are giving people opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to know the gospel. And the very last few verses of chapter 9, we looked at last week, tells us the people know that God is doing this, know that they should come to Christ. But they refuse. They would rather continue to live in sin and their lifestyles than turn to God and what God would have for them in freedom, in, in protection. And we're going to look today, uh, starting in Revelation chapter 10. Uh, so you can turn there. It's going to be on the screens. Or if you want to use one of the Bibles on the pew rack there, it's on page 1033. It's right near the end. Um, something that's unique about the book of Revelation, not just it being prophecy about the end times, is it's not necessarily always sequential in order. John writes about some judgments happening, and then sometimes he'll take a little break and describe some other stuff that's going on. Like we're going to see that actually next week. He's been describing some judgments. He's going to do some more today. And then next week we're going to see he's going to take a break from the judgments and start talking about some of the people involved in the world order at the time, uh, like the Antichrist and, and his right-hand man. Um, and so he's gonna, John's going to take a little break from describing the judgments and talk about that uh, next week. But as we look today, uh, the last thing we, see, we saw in chapter 9 was angel number 6 blew his trumpet. Some stuff happened. And then John looks, before the seventh trumpet is blown, some stuff's going to happen first. So Revelation chapter 10, starting in verse 1. John writes, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. 
and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. So John looked. So remember, John's been describing what he's seeing in heaven. And he saw these angels blowing their trumpets. They get to angel number six. Angel seven standing there with his trumpet. He's not blowing it yet. Uh, angel six blows his trumpet. The stuff happens. And then John sees this another massive, mighty angel come out. And he describes this angel. He says, the angel had a rainbow over his head. Uh, that could be describing, you know, the rainbow, like around God's throne. He describes back a few chapters ago, the rainbow around God's throne. It could be a symbol of that. He has the authority of God. It could be a symbol of just what a rainbow is. It's a reminder of God's promise, a reminder of God's covenant, that this angel is coming, and, and, and he's coming with the fullness of God's promise backing him in what he's coming. And he's got in his hand, John describes, a little scroll, and the little scroll is open. The only scroll we've seen so far is the scroll that God had in his hand that Jesus took uh, that was sealed up. It was closed until Jesus opened it. So this is a new scroll. It is open, no seals on this, and the angel is holding it. And he comes down, this angel comes down. He's got his right foot in the sea and his left foot on the land. Um, as best we can tell, we believe uh, that is because the message of the scroll is for the whole world. Uh, he's, got his, he's got one foot in the sea, one foot on the land, and so it, it encompasses the whole world. The message that the scroll is going to communicate is for everybody, everywhere. Now look at verse 3. And the angel called out with a loud voice, like a, roaring, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now this is interesting. Before we get to verse 4, we have no idea what this means. <laughs> Uh, lots of speculation, but Scripture doesn't really tell us. The fact that it, it, it is described as the seven thunders, the number seven, particularly in Old Testament prophecy, the significant, uh, uh, that is significant because it means the completion, the fullness of the thing. So the complete thunder, whatever that is, is sounding. And he describes it with the article the, so it is the seven thunders, the thunder sounding in this way. But it's not just making the rumble of thunder, right? Look at verse 4. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now this is what is so mind-boggling here. The thunder speaks. Like actual words. And John's going to write down what the thunder says. Because remember, John's commission is to write down everything. Everything he sees, hears, experiences. Well, he hears the thunder say something. Maybe it was just a loud voice that was so loud it, was, it was, sounded like thunder. Uh, whatever. He hears what is said and he goes to write it down. But then John is told, don't write that. You don't need to write that down. Just don't. Now, I think about that, and I think, okay, if John's told to write everything down, and, and now he's told not to write this down, why would John even include the seven thunders? Like, why write it there if we can't know what the seven thunders say? Like, have you ever had somebody start to tell you something, and they say, oh, I'm not going to tell you that? 
Like, well, you've already started. Now you've got to tell me. You've got to finish the story. Like, you've got to tell me what's coming. Like, you're leaving me hanging now. So John says, I hear this voice, but I'm not going to tell you what it says because I was told not to tell you what it says. I'm going to tell you something was said, but you're not supposed to know what it is. And that's the only reason we would know something was said, but not know what was said, is because we're not supposed to know what was said. You know, no matter how much we read and how much we try to understand what's coming at the end times, there's always going to be stuff we don't know. There's always going to be stuff that we don't know. And no matter how much we want to know, we have to trust God's knowledge and God's guidance in the end as much as we do, as much as we should today. You know, back in Deuteronomy, God says that the secret things belong to the Lord. So this is a message, it would seem, that was specifically for John, that only John and God would know. And he's not supposed to know it, he's, or he's not supposed to say it, he's just supposed to know it, seal it up within himself, what is said here. We're supposed to have faith, and we're supposed to follow, and not desire what we're not supposed to know. I know that's a hard thing for some of us, because we want to know everything. We want to know all the gossip. We want to know all the rumors. We want to know everything about everybody, and, and we want to know it and know it, and that's why we, uh, we do a deep dive on Facebook sometimes, because we got to know the rest of the story. We, got, we, 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 we scroll down the hundreds of comments on somebody on their post sometimes just to see what's actually going on in the situation. Not that it would benefit us in any way, shape, or form, because it makes us feel better about ourselves if somebody else is going through something difficult. But here, in this difficult situation of the end times, God is communicating there's something you're not supposed to know, people. I know it. And you got to trust me that I know something you don't. you got to trust that God is big enough to know something we don't. You know, trying to know something that you don't know is really, that was Adam and Eve's problem. Because what was the name of the tree that they ate from and brought sin into the world? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to know everything God knew. And so they went and they took a piece of fruit off of that tree. Because they thought it would make them know everything God knew. Make them like God. You know, my job as a follower of Christ is to do my job. Not to do God's job. My job is to do my job. Not God's job. I need to trust God to do his job. Now catch this. I need to trust God to do his job as, at least as much as he trusts me to do mine. I want to just try to wrap your head around this for a second. Because when God gave the job of communicating the gospel to the entire world, he gave it to his disciples with no backup plan. He had enough faith in those untrained people to communicate the message to everybody on the planet. That's a lot of faith. That's a lot of faith. If you were God, would you trust that, hand, that handful of people to do that? I wouldn't. I'd say, let's get some better guys in there. Uh, let, 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 let's, let's get some better communication going on. These guys, this is the worst group of, of people, if you look at their resumes, to take this message to the world. But those are the guys that God picked with no backup plan. And now all of us 
have been handed the baton in this generation to do that very thing with no backup plan in sight. God didn't have a backup plan when he birthed you into the world and gave you, saved you to take the gospel to the world. He said, you are plan A and there's no plan B. Take it out there. God trusts us enough to communicate the gospel. He trusts us enough that he has no backup plan. That we're not his last resort. We're the only option he put out into the world. But if you flip that, how often, how often do we trust God fully when he's not just our last resort? How often do we exhaust all other resources before getting to God? And say, well, I've got nothing left to do but pray. Or I've got nothing left to do but trust that God will handle it. How often do we trust God before he's our last resort? And how often, this one really super convicted me, how often do we trust God enough to not have a backup plan? Say, oh, I'll pray about it and trust God, but really I got all this stuff in reserve, like just in case God doesn't come through, then I can, I can enact my plan and do all this stuff uh, that if God really doesn't, you know, deliver the way I want him to, I'll, I'll lean on my backup plan. But if we have a backup plan, that's not really trusting God at all. There's no trust there. That's saying, I don't really trust you to do it. I remember the old TV show. Uh, I, I forget the name of it now. It's blanking. I mean, it, this, you would all know the show if I said it out loud. Of course, this, this is the way it works. You, you get to the moment, and you can't remember the thing. Uh, but in the show, uh, this family lived near their in-laws, and it was uh, uh, the... The, the son, or I guess, you know, the in-laws lived over here, and they lived down here. And uh, the husband of this family is the son of the in-laws. And his wife was supposed to be preparing the meal for a big family get-together. But mother-in-law brought food because she didn't trust the daughter-in-law to be able to make the food for her. She knew the daughter-in-law would mess up. And so she brought all this food and put it in the freezer ahead of time because she didn't trust that she would do it. Yeah, everybody loves Raymond. That was it. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, Marie. Yeah, you can always trust Marie, not to trust anybody but herself. Um, but Deborah did it. She did it, whether the trust was there or not. Do we trust God enough to not have a backup plan sometimes? Do we trust God enough? I mean, God is God. Does he really need a backup plan? Do we need a backup plan for almighty, all-powerful God who created everything that is with a word? Do we need to back him up? <laughs> I think he can handle it. You see, what we, what we really need to do is always trust God to be faithful. Because God is always faithful. We need to always trust God to be faithful because he will always be faithful. It may not be in our timetable. Actually, I can almost guarantee it won't be. And it, won't, it may not always look like what you anticipate it looking like. But I guarantee you, it will far exceed what you had planned. Because God is always faithful. Always faithful. Irregardless of how faithful we are, God is always faithful. So we always need to trust God to be faithful. He will always fulfill his glorifying plan at just the right time. I mean, here, he gives John all of the information that he needs to do his job the way God wants him to do it, when God wants him to do it. 
God gives John everything he needs to communicate this revelation to us now so many years later. So John hears what those thunders say, and he's told not to write it down. Verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there will be no more delay. Now, a few chapters ago, there were some martyrs in heaven, in God's throne room, who asked God why the delay, when the delay will be over. And God had told them, just wait a little bit longer. And now here we're told, there will be no more delay. Verse 7. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to the servants, the prophets. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul tells us the mystery of God is the gospel. The fulfillment of the gospel, in its fullness, will occur here in the end times, is what he's saying. That means every single person who will be saved will be saved by the time the ultimate end comes here in just a few chapters. Uh, And so then John, look at verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is opened in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Now, before we read the next verse, I want you to think about just saying, What is he told to do? Go and take the scroll. Is he told to do anything else? He's told, go take the scroll from the angel. Just take it. Verse 9. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the scroll. Did John go and take the scroll? He gets it in just a second. But what John does, instead of going and just instinctively taking the scroll, he goes up to the angel. Maybe the angel's super intimidating. I don't know. But he goes up to the angel and he says, can, can, give, me the, give me that scroll. And he's going to receive it. He goes up. I went and told, to the angel, told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. It will taste sweet in your mouth, but be bitter in your stomach. Katie's grandmother used to say, you know, that she really liked chocolate, but her, her stomach didn't like it very much. Uh, it tasted sweet, but it would mess her up. Uh, anybody have any food like that? It tastes amazing, but it'll mess you up. I know some food like that. Uh, there, there's, some, there's sometimes I'll think, uh, you have to argue with yourself, is it worth what's going to come? Sometimes you feel like it is until later. Uh, in the moment it feels good, but later it does not so much. He says, take it in your mouth. It will be sweet as honey. It tastes amazing. But it's going to be bitter in your stomach. It's going to mess up. Your stomach. Take and eat the scroll. Eat the scroll. Now, this situation has happened before with prophets in the past, particularly Ezekiel is told to go and eat the scroll, and it's going to be sweet in his mouth. And the scroll represents the message God wants him to deliver. It's going to taste sweet for you. The, the, the message you're supposed to deliver, the word of God, is going to be good as it comes out of your mouth. But something about it is going to mess up your stomach. And, but notice, the bitterness is in John's stomach, the communicator of the message, not in the stomachs of the hearers. It's going to mess him up a little bit. 
The pang of bitterness will be with those delivering the message. Because what we read at the end of chapter 9, the message will be heard but not received. Have you ever told, shared the gospel with somebody and they just flat rejected it to your face? It's like a pit in your stomach. I mean, it's like having the rug yanked out from under you. You were so excited to share the gospel with this person. And they just shot you down like and spit in your face kind of feeling. That's the best we can tell from this passage is John's going to communicate the message in a similar way to Jeremiah, communicate the message, but the message will not be received. The response of the people will be bitter. And so the believer, at reading this, we should be driven to urgency to communicate the power of the message to everyone so they can, they can experience the joy that is in the message. But knowing full well that there's going to be plenty of rejection. But the thing is, if you remember the Great Commission, Jesus telling us, make disciples of all nations. It's our job to tell people the gospel. It's not our job to save them. We can't make them believe. We can't make people believe. If you've ever had kids and you've told your kids to do something, you can't make people do much anything. <laughs> but you can tell them what's right. You can tell them the gospel. You can tell them the truth that will bring salvation. And then it's up to them to believe and follow. John is told to communicate this message. And the reception may not be great. So what does John do? He obeys, verse 10. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is almost like a recommissioning for John. Because remember, I mean, the Great Commission, John was there uh, on the mountainside when Jesus went up into heaven. John was there when he told his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. John was there. And so now John is being told again, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. You must go out and do it again. Now, we don't know exactly how old John is here. We believe him to be in his upper 80s or 90s. And he's receiving this commission. All right, you're not, you're not done yet. You're not gone yet. I've still got a job for you to do. You're going to go and you're going to communicate this. Again, prophesy. You're going to go out and tell more people about me. John may have assumed being exiled on this island that he was there to die on this prison island. And now Jesus is telling him, you're going to get out of here and you're going to go tell more people about me. So he receives this recommissioning. And then he's not done. So, and try to remember, this is all in the middle of waiting for angel number seven to blow his trumpet. He's seen six angels blow their trumpets. He's waiting on angel seven to blow his trumpet. And all this stuff is happening in the middle of it. Look at verse one of chapter 11. <clears throat> then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, before we talk about what is going on here, we have to talk again, as we have every part of the way so far through Revelation, uh, about how we interpret stuff in Revelation. 
Because a whole lot of commentators, when they get to this point, they say everything we just read about in, in chapter 9, that was all figurative. That's, you know, that's, that, that's a representation of what's going to happen. But now in chapter 10, this is literal. Like, this is literally going to happen. But there's no indication that anything changed from chapter 9 to chapter 10. People who switch in that kind of interpretation, jumping back and forth, it's just a gut feeling. I have a gut feeling that this is literal and what was, came before is figurative. Now, I have a problem with that. Because I don't know about your gut feeling about stuff. My gut feeling is based on my sinful nature. And so if I base how I interpret scripture based on my sin nature, it's going to be a sinful interpretation every time. And so in my mind, revelation, which is prophecy, is always, even in the Old Testament, it's figurative language. And so we can't jump back and forth. Otherwise, we run the risk of minimizing what God is doing in Scripture. But that's not to say I can't be wrong. I can absolutely be wrong. And you can disagree with me right now. And we can get to heaven and you can come up to me and say, told you. That's fine. I think we're all going to get to heaven when it comes to Revelation. And we're all going to say, man, I, we were all wrong. Like, we weren't even close to what's going down. But it's not going to matter because Jesus is standing right in front of us. And so I believe this is still figurative. An angel comes to John and gives him this uh, uh, this is all taking place in his vision. The angel comes and gives him a rod. A rod is like, I mean, it's like a measuring, you know, like a measuring tape, but it would be like almost more like a yardstick. Like it's a predetermined length, and they would go and they would measure stuff out with it. Um, and so he's given this, maybe a bamboo rod or, or a reed from a river, but he's given this rod, uh, and he's told to go and measure the temple of God and the altar and everyone who's worshiping inside, but not outside. Don't worship the court. Outside where, you know, if you look in Scripture, the court outside the temple proper was still actually considered part of the temple. Uh, it was where, I mean, what he's talking about here is where Gentiles, unbelievers, as the Jews would phrase it, would come in and they would, if they were wanting to believe, they would come into that outside section and they would worship. It was still thought of as part of the temple. But what John is being told is, don't touch that outside part. Just touch the inside part. And, and what's going on in there, measure that. And so we believe this is the temple itself is a reference to the church, to Christians. Um, God's church, Christians are called his temple by Paul in, I got it in three places. 1 Corinthians 3.16, 2 Corinthians 6.16, and Ephesians 2.21. God's people are called, the believers are called God's temple. And so we believe then that this temple that he's referencing is about the church, is about Christians. And so if the church, the temple is representative of the church, and that section outside is representative of unbelievers, those who don't believe, which Gentiles was used, I mean, before it became a racial, uh, um, uh, was used racially, it was used to refer to everybody who does not believe were, were Gentiles. Um, and so that is, who's in that outside section? Unbelievers, you go and measure the believers, the followers of Christ, and in the outside section, outside the temple, uh, will be trampled. The holy city, which could be another reference to uh, believers. It could be an intense time of persecution there. For a period of time, as we're going to see in a sec, 42 months, which is three and a half years, which, again, taking the book of Revelation... Half of the number seven, which is the complete number. Half of completeness. Half of perfection. They'll be harmed. 
incredibly through this great persecution. So taking those verses there, it would seem as though unbelievers are going to persecute the church severely for a limited amount of time. Look what happens next, verse 3. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. That's about 42 months, or again, three and a half years, half of seven. They will be clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord on the earth. Now, that's interesting. Some people think these two witnesses, these two prophets, this are Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament coming back, and they're going to prophesy. Scripture does talk about Elijah coming back and prophesying, but Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 17 that Elijah coming back was John the Baptist uh, coming before Jesus. Uh, fulfilled, or I mean, not John, uh, Matthew, yeah, it was Matthew 17, uh, verse 10. Um, but we're told that there are going to be two witnesses who are going to prophesy. We're not told their names, just that the representative representatives of God communicating God's message to the world. But then it says in verse 4 there, right, there are two olive trees. This is important. There are two lampstands. Now, olive trees and lampstands are mentioned together in a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 4. The olive trees, meaning they have plentiful supply, but the lampstand shining into the darkness is, is a very unique reference. But that is not the first reference to lampstands that we have in the book of Revelation. Back in Revelation chapter 1, lampstands are mentioned, encompassing the whole church. They're mentioned as seven lampstands, meaning God's whole church, all the Christians, seven lampstands. And so here, John says, or is communicated to about these witnesses, these two witnesses. These are going to be two lampstands. Two. So not the full seven, two of them. Part of the whole, but not the whole, are going to be here. And they're going to communicate um, the message of God. Verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So these believers are going to be out here communicating the gospel. And ultimately, they're going to be invulnerable for a period of time. Like, it says people are going to try to harm them. And everyone who tries to harm them will be killed. So these guys, uh, these people communicating the gospel will be unable to be harmed for a little while. While they're communicating, or as we're told, for half of seven. Uh, for... Uh, half of the complete number. And the, lots of things are going to come about as a result of their preaching. These plagues, these judgments that we've talked about thus far will be happening during uh, their communication of the gospel. Uh, look at verse 7, what happens when they finish. When they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. This is the first reference we have to this guy, the beast. John's going to talk about him in a couple chapters. Uh, but he's going to come out of the bottomless pit, which we already saw a week ago, uh, two weeks ago. The bottomless pit is where 
demons reside, where uh, great evil resides. And this beast is going to come out empowered by that great evil. And it says he's going to make war on these believers. And he's going to conquer them, and he's going to kill them. But not until the time is done for them to communicate the gospel. They will not be killed until they finish communicating the gospel as, as, as uh, fully as God wants it communicated. And then, verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now, that's interesting. I mean, a city that's called Sodom in Egypt, it's not a very familiar reference, but saying where their Lord was crucified, well, that's got to be Jerusalem. But Jerusalem's not called Sodom. Jerusalem's not called Egypt. That's very odd. And he goes out of his way here not to say Jerusalem. There's other times he says Jerusalem. But he goes way out of his way not to specifically say Jerusalem. When he's already been talking about the temple that is the people of God and the outside of the temple that is not the people of God, uh, we believe this right here is a reference to that. Uh, that out there in the world's culture where Christ was crucified by the unbelievers, where the evil is, Sodom and Egypt, their bodies are lying dead out there in the unbelieving world. As a, as a sign of shame, as a sign of rejection, as a sign of dishonor. Dishonor in the world's culture, but not dishonor to God. They have been greatly honored by God because they fulfilled their purpose in communicating the gospel. And so their bodies are lying out there for a period of time. Verse 9. For three and a half days, again, half of seven, for three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets who had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So at their death, there's going to be a party. When these believers die, there's going to be a party, a celebration because of the message they communicated. The message they communicated was a torment to everyone who does not believe because they didn't want to believe. They didn't want to hear what they were communicating about salvation, about the gospel. Honestly, we see this very thing happening today in the political arena or just in the world at large uh, when somebody of a differing political you know, uh, viewpoint passes away if they were extreme enough and loud enough in their communication, there's rejoicing on the other side of the aisle, which is just despicable. And we're rejoicing because somebody died, no matter how much we disagree with them. This is going to happen. These, these believers are going to die, and there's going to be a party. They're gone. They're going to be so excited, they're going to give each other presents. Today is dead prophet day. You can have a present, and you can have a present, and you can have a present. There's going to be a great party for a little while. Half of seven. But everything's not over. Now, verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. So they are resurrected. People watching have great fear on what transpires here. And now the voice that tells them to come up isn't identified, but 
a loud voice from heaven, most often is the voice of God, calls them up and they go up to heaven. And everyone watches this and more fear falls on them at the power of God, at what has been happening. I mean, they've been celebrating now for a little while and, and now the source of their celebration, the opposite happens and they are resurrected and taken to heaven. That, I think that would bring great conviction on everyone who watches this. Everyone who is celebrating the death of these believers now sees these believers resurrected by the power of God. And so naturally great fear would fall on them because maybe now they're thinking, maybe those guys were right. Like maybe what they were saying about Jesus and coming to Christ and believing in him and finding salvation and eternal life, maybe that's right. I, mean, they've been res- I haven't even seen people resurrected before. Maybe these guys are right. And so great fear falls on everyone witnessing this. Verse 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified. There's fear again. And gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed, but the third woe is soon to come. Earlier in the book of Revelation, it was said, woe, 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 something is coming. And we've seen those woes begin to pass. And so here we have a tenth of the city falling. That's a unique reference. This is the only time a tenth is mentioned in all the book of Revelation. Um, and then 7,000 people die. Uh, both those references, it, it, it is a significant portion, a tenth or 7,000 people, it's not quite as debilitatingly crippling as, you know, a quarter of the world's population dying as we've seen at one point, or a third of the world's population dying as we've seen at another point, but it's still a significant number. I mean, 7,000 is a massive amount of people dying in one shot. A tenth of the city, of uh, uh, the world's culture collapsing in that moment. But look at what it says. It says the people... The rest of the people, they're they're terrified, and they give glory to the God of heaven. Now, that is very unique. Now, we know from Scripture, I mean, like back in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar gave glory to God, but he didn't get saved. He didn't follow God or believe God, but he still gave glory to God. So it's possible to give glory but not follow. So that could be what's happening here. But this could also be a reference to people getting saved. God gets glory when people are saved. And so this could be a reference to that. When they see these, these, these believers go, uh, uh, are resurrected, and then this great earthquake, tenth of the world's uh, collapsing, 7,000 people dying uh, and giving glory to God, that glory could be these people getting saved. It could very well be that. We don't really know, but that uh, could be what's happening. And so the second woe is past, but there's one more to come. There's still something terrible that's coming down the road. And at this point, now that all this has transpired, in between trumpet number six and trumpet number seven, now trumpet number seven is blown. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. So the seventh trumpet rings out. And now when the seventh seal was broken, there was silence for 30 minutes, it said. Now this time it's the opposite of silence. There's a whole lot of noise. The seventh trumpet is blown. And then there's these loud voices that that cry out in praise. 
uh, about Jesus reigning forever and ever. Then the 24 elders who are in the throne room of God fall down before God and they begin to worship God again. So it's a moment of great praise with the 24 elders joining in this great praise opportunity. God is praised because he's, he's universally in charge and nothing can change that fact. Look at what the 24 elders say. They said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you were taken. Now, before we, who is and who was. Now, you would think it says who is and who was and who is to come. But the is to come is happening now. So we don't need the is to come. He, he is. He was in the past and he is right now. The is to come doesn't matter because he is right now. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Notice the compare and contrast. The nations raged in their wrath, but your wrath, God, came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Destroying the destroyers. This is a, the time of judgment. It's what he's talking about. Being judged. This is the, the, the time of judgment is at hand. Being judged if you don't believe in Jesus. Being judged for your sins. If you do believe in judgment, that judgment, that judgment's different because your judgment's already been paid. Your punishment's already been paid by Jesus. He says, so this, the time of the end is now Come. All people, believers and unbelievers alike, will be rewarded accordingly. Verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. All those responses of nature, expressions of nature, those are expressions of celebration here. Flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, earthquake, heavy hail. It's as though nature itself is responding in praise to God in what's happening. But they're responding to being able to see the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represents God's presence. God's visible presence is what that represents. And so being able to see that, God's presence now being accessible by all, not just the high priest. I mean, back in the day, the high priest would go in to the Ark of the Covenant where it was, hidden behind this massive curtain. He would go in once a year. One guy would see it one time, once a year, and that was it. But now we're being told the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, is able to be accessible by everybody all the time. Anybody can walk in anytime they want into God's presence. God is, is close to his people, being accessible at all times. But God is accessible only to those who want access. God is accessible to anybody who wants access. You want access to God, you can have it. God's always available for you to have access to him. But if you don't want access to God, that's your choice, to walk without God's presence. Intentionally walking without him wherever you want to go. Just as all these people we've been seeing have been doing. God is accessible by everyone who wants access. He's not far off. 
he's not difficult to get to. You don't have to go over the river and through the woods to get to God. He's right there with you wherever you are in the midst of whatever trouble you're going through. He's always accessible right there with you. Always. No matter where you find yourself, no matter how far your rock bottom is, God is still there with you. And you have access to Almighty God right there in the midst of the moment. If you simply turn to Him. Turn to Him. Jesus tells the people, He says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, come to me and find relief, find rest. He says, rest for your soul, soul rest. Not just bodily rest. I mean, you can, you can be fully rested physically and in inner turmoil within you. Soul rest is completely different. Soul rest is energizing. Soul rest is relief. Jesus says, come to me and you'll find that kind of peace. You want access to that kind of peace. He says, come to me. That's how the book of Revelation ends, as we're going to see in a few weeks. It ends with an invitation. He says, come, all who are thirsty, and take a drink from the living water. Come to Jesus. Don't just come when he's a last resort. Don't just come when you're carrying your backup plan with you. Come to him full of faith in the midst of wherever you find yourself. Come to him because you need him desperately. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. So that's the question. Will you come and trust him? Will you come to Jesus and trust him with whatever you've got going on? Will you come to Jesus and trust him with stuff beyond your control? Will you come to Jesus and trust him when life isn't turning out like what you wanted? When you come, will you come to Jesus and trust him when stuff's not happening fast enough? Will you come to Jesus and trust him when all these other people won't stop there talking? Will you come to Jesus and trust him when people let you down? Will you come to Jesus Gain access to Almighty God. Will you come to Jesus and trust him today? Maybe trust him for the first time. Believe he, God's son, died so all your sins would be forgiven. All of them. Believe that he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Will you come to Jesus today?